seats. We will, I'll give you a couple of minutes to get settled and in your seats while uh, I run over some of the announcements. First of all, we do have a lost and found, and it's not salvific. And uh, it is, Sandy took everything and she put it outside, um, I think it's this, this storeroom, storage door, she, she's, yeah, right, she's pointing outside in the, in the fellowship hall by the uh, back storage room. So take a look and see if there's anything there that's yours and if um, uh, in a couple of weeks, if it hasn't been claimed, we're just going to donate it all to Goodwill or someone. Also a reminder about the Christmas shoebox ministry. That has begun. The info is out there in the fellowship hall. And then a reminder that this Sunday night at 6 o'clock, we're going to begin our, our um, Bible study methods class from 6 to 7.30. If anybody wants to take that as a, as a cred, for-credit class with Chafer Seminary, they can do that. They have to register, though, with the seminary and pay tuition for the seminary. Otherwise, it's just free for everybody. But if you want course credit, if you want to take it in that way, there may be some people watching who, for whom that applies, um, then uh, you have to contact them uh, that way. And then the announcement went out today. Don't get confused on this. I know you will. That's why I said don't get confused. There are two pro-Israel events coming up. We're, we're doing double duty with the same speaker. One event is targeting teens. That's going to be at Beth Yashurn on Thursday night, October the 17th. One event is going to be for adults. That will be here on Sunday night, October the 20th. And you are not going to, uh, you're not going to want to miss it. Um, Vita Velasco, who's with Stand With Us, is going to be speaking at both events, and she is a, a great speaker, a lot of energy, and very passionate about Israel. I've mentioned her a little bit before. She's a Filipino Christian, and she goes. To, she has been taking courses in the Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute under uh, Michael Rydelnik, who is uh, was I. I believe he was led to the Lord by the same lady who led Arnold Fruchtenbaum to the Lord. He's understandable, though, whereas Arnold is not. Uh, last year, uh, Michael was in Houston for a speaking engagement. I met him at Kenny and Ziggy's, and he said there was, he couldn't believe there was a Jewish deli in Houston. Not only that, but it's better than any Jewish deli in Chicago, New York, or Los Angeles. So it is a fabulous place to go. If you've never been there, I highly recommend it. Uh, not just because I know the owners, but because it's, but take your appetite because one order is usually enough for three people. It, it's, uh, it's, it's fabulous. But I've heard this from, uh, any number of people now that it has a, the, it's the best Jewish deli in the country. So, uh, Anyway, I took Michael there, and, he, and Ziggy happened to come out, and and they had all these mutual friends from back in New York, so that was that was kind of fun. But Michael is really done the body of Christ an enormous service because he has specialized in demonstrating that the messianic nature of the Old Testament. And you may find that you've heard me talk about this, you've heard me explain it, but even so, this last. Um, I didn't mention this Sunday morning when we were in Isaiah 7:14, but uh, 
but there was someone at the, um, a pastor who was at the, uh, who's in the doctoral program up there at uh, Baptist Bible Seminary and who <clears throat> I ran into and spent some time talking with at the airport when I was leaving to come home last Friday. And he's one of these guys who really doesn't believe anything in Isaiah 7, 8, or 9 is messianic. It just blows your mind. So Michael is doing a fabulous job anyway. So Vita is taking classes under him and is doing a, a great job. You'll really appreciate having her. She's just passionate about Israel. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful we can come before your throne of grace this evening. Just ask your guidance and direction on our thinking this evening. We continue to pray for the missionaries we support. We pray for Jim Myers. We pray for Igor Smoyar. We pray for George Meisinger, especially in his health, and for Chafer Seminary. Father, we continue to pray, too, for our nation. We pray for wisdom among the leadership that is in Washington as well as the leadership all the way down to the local level. We know there are many who seek to make uh, course corrections in our nation to take us away from the path of freedom and the path of, of uh, personal responsibility and to grow government. And we pray that you might hinder their, uh, their, their tactics and strategy and that you might continue to raise up leaders who will see the truth and who will be willing to take stands to uh, prevent the ongoing growth of government. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might Always remember that our focus is on serving you and on the proclamation of the gospel, challenging people with the truth of your word, being a living witness as well as a verbal witness. And we pray for guidance as we, in our thinking, as we focus this evening. In Christ's name, amen. I mentioned this on Sunday, that last week I went to the Council for Dis of Dispensational Hermeneutics. It's a little bit of a misnomer. Tommy's blood pressure goes high every time he goes out there because dispensationalism is not a hermeneutic. Reformed theology is a hermeneutic. If you look up on Reformed websites and you read in Reformed theologies, they will say that their hermeneutic is a historical, grammatical, uh, theological hermeneutic. They make interpretation, theology is part of their hermeneutical grid. Theology is not part of your hermeneutical grid. That should be Bible study Zero, zero, one, first grade. Theology is the result of your hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is your, the, the principles of interpretation that yield a theological framework. Dispensationalism is a theology that is the result of a consistently applied literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. And so anyway, the, they do face, but they are focusing on hermeneutic issues. And this 
council has been, I think this was the fifth or sixth meeting. This was my third. Uh, you're, you're the people who are present, present papers are usually invited, which was the case this year. The focus this year was interesting. It was on the cessation of the sign gets. Now, that terminology may be a little unfamiliar to some of you, but the terminology that's developed in academic circles over the last 20 years has been cessation versus non-cessation. And cessation means you believe that the so-called sign gifts and tongues have been, have ended. They have ceased. They ceased sometime in the first century. And non-cessationists are not always charismatic. Used to be we just talked about charismatics and non-charismatics or Pentecostals or non-Pentecostals. But not all non-cessationists are, have a Pentecostal or charismatic theology. But there are people out there who uh, have varying beliefs on these issues, and so there were some some good papers. And like a lot of co- conferences, unfortunately, pre-trib isn't like this, and our conference isn't like this. I think most of the presenters at, at pre-trib and at our conference are excellent. Every now and then you have one that sort of hit, hits a flat note or they, it doesn't really go out of the park too much. But um, you can't control those things. This conference really wasn't all that. I mean, I, there were a couple of papers that were interesting and stimulating, but there was one in particular that was pretty interesting. And I, I'm always hesitant to mention things I read that are good because what makes it a good book for me is because of what it causes me to think. I may disagree with everything the writer says, but it caused me to think and to improve my my understanding of something and it crystallized my thinking, and so that's what makes it a good book, not because I necessarily agree with it. Well, most of the stuff that this one guy wrote, I agree with. And he is, uh, he, uh, I first ran across him from reading some material he wrote a few years ago in a couple of articles. He's now uh, teaching here in Houston. He's got a church up in Brenham as well, Brenham Bible Church. And it was a very interesting paper dealing with the relationship of signs and wonders and the um, and the kingdom of God, and with what he said, some other things, and just happened to be a pure chance of the universe. It's a laughter moment. It worked out. He was teaching about this right after I'd finished teaching last Tuesday night, and finishing up looking at Acts one. I mean Acts nineteen. Uh, eight dealing with what Paul was doing in terms of teaching uh, the synagogue about the kingdom of God. And it was just one of those great aha moments when a lot of different threads all of a sudden come together. And so what we're going to do is tie a lot of things together. And those of you who've been sitting with me going through Acts painstakingly in the last few weeks, we've dealt with the transition nature of Acts, which is very important. I've been emphasizing things related to the kingdom of God, which is very important. And there's a lot of confusion on this today. I mean, most evangelical Christians think we're in some form of the kingdom today. They think that we are either... Uh, we're in uh, an already not yet. That's the catch word. That came from a theologian at Fuller Seminary in the late 50s by the name of George Eldon Ladd, that, that in some ways the kingdom came in and was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost, 
when the Holy Spirit descended as, as sort of a foretaste, and there's different ways in which this is expressed, but they all believe that we're in some form of the kingdom. It's been inaugurated, but it's not fully here yet and won't fully be here in its fullest expression until Jesus returns. And this is really a, a, a mis, total misconception of the kingdom as traditional dispensationalists, and not because we're dispensational, but because we're biblicists. That's what John Walford would say. He was a president of Dallas Seminary, the second president following Lewis Perry Chafer, and he corrected me several times. He says, no, Robbie, we don't believe that because it's dispensational. We believe it because it's biblical. And dispensationalism is the result of being biblical. Okay, you don't impose your theology on the text. That's very important in terms of method, and too many people do that. They use their theology to interpret the Bible. That's what Satan does, so just don't do that. We have to interpret the text, and what the text says then informs our theology. You don't use your theology to interpret the text. If you do, go dance in circles with Calvin and Luther and Wesley. But don't claim to be dispensational or don't claim to be biblical. Just just claim your theology. So we always want to go, you know, deal with the text and, and start with the text and our interpretation of the text. And so we've been working through some of these issues in uh, in Acts. So let's just review Acts 19.8. That's our touchstone before we go back and put some of these things together. Paul goes into Ephesus, and for three months, the longest ministry recorded in in Paul's ministry where he has an ongoing teaching time in a synagogue is here in Ephesus. He's there for three whole months. Obviously, there were people who took a while to make up their decision about what Paul was teaching, and it took them three months. In other places, we've seen that he lasted maybe three weeks, like in uh, Thessalonica, uh, maybe just a little bit longer in Corinth. But he goes into the synagogue, and and he's there for three months, and he's reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now, Luke doesn't have to tell us what he's saying about the kingdom of God because Luke made these things clear in the earliest part of, of Acts. The issue for Jews was to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. This is the second offer of the kingdom that's being made to to the Jewish people. That's why Paul's going to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Understanding this kingdom message is so important, and it's not well understood and well taught. And, and as I've gone through these studies in the last few months, it's, some of these things have become more and more uh, clear to me as we've gone along. So he's reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. What is Paul teaching about the kingdom of God? He's teaching the same thing that Peter taught in Acts 2 when we went through all of that, that they, the Jewish people need to repent, which means to turn back to God. The language comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30 when God told the Jewish people that after they had been dispersed, after they had been scattered among all the nations, that at some point in the future after all of that, they would turn back to God, and God would restore them to the land. So that's that terminology in the Hebrew. It's the word shuv, meaning to turn back to God. So Jesus, this is, goes back to the message of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came along and said the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples had the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what happened? 
We're hearing, going to hear all about this in Matthew. They, the Jewish people and the leadership rejected that. Now, many Jews accepted Christ as a Messiah, but they were, they were a minority, even though I believe they were a large minority, they were still a minority. Then the kingdom was postponed, and from the midpoint or so of Jesus' ministry on, there's no longer an emphasis on the kingdom offer. The emphasis is on training his disciples for the post-resurrection ministry that will go into the church age. But once they, he, he's uh, resurrected, he taught the disciples for a period of 40 days before the ascension. What did he teach them? Do you all remember? What did he teach them in those 40 days in Luke chapter, I mean in Acts chapter 1? You all remember? He taught them about the kingdom of God. And I said at the, that at when we began this, that the, from the first chapter to the last chapter, there's this emphasis on the kingdom of God throughout Acts. And it is foundationally related to this message to the Jew first because it flows out of the Gospels. But this is a second offer of the kingdom. Now, some people have gotten confused because they, they think that, well, it wasn't always already inevitable that Israel would go through a divine judgment and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And yes, that was inevitable. But if they had responded to the kingdom offer, the church age would have just been truncated. It just would have been short. It still would have been there. But if, if, if the Jews had responded and called upon the name of the Lord and said for the Lord to come and deliver them, he would have. That would have, it just would have been a very short time between the first advent and the second advent. And so, uh, but there's obviously this postponement of the kingdom and something new is happening that's bringing in the Gentiles. Now that was important. I pointed out that this is one of the issues in, in, in understanding Matthew is that Matthew is writing in part to explain to his Jewish Christian audience about, in about 50 AD, the the reason that the kingdom is being postponed, going again through all the Old Testament passages to show that Jesus is indeed the messianic son of David and that the kingdom is being postponed, Gentiles are being included, why this is happening and what the issues are and that just to confirm them in their uh, in their faith. This goes all the way through Acts. This is a major theme in the apostolic period, and this relates to what I was teaching in terms of transition because the temple is still standing. And because the temple is still standing and because Israel is still in the land, this is an emphasis in the message that was there then in that transitional period. But that message ceases by the mid-60s, by the beginning of the Jewish revolt, sometime around 65, 66, 67, that message, that offer of the kingdom uh, to the Jews stops. And some other things stop along with it. But that's characteristic of, of this, this particular period. So what we see is that that I haven't really brought out and this was one of the things that all of a sudden I had a blinding flash of the obvious, is when you have a message preaching and proclaiming the kingdom, what goes along with that message? What goes along with the message are signs and wonders. You had this outbreak of miracles 
when Jesus shows up on the scene, when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, when the disciples are on the scene, all proclaiming the message of the kingdom, there is an outbreak of miracles, of signs and wonders, and the purpose is not simply to validate the claims of the Messiah, but to give a foretaste, a preview of coming attractions in relation to the king and the kingdom. This is why you have, this helps understand why in the book of Acts you continue to have this outbreak of miraculous activity, healing, signs and wonders, various miracles, along with the casting out of demons and speaking in tongues. All of those things fit together because what was it that Paul says? The Jew seeks for a sign in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What are the Jews getting? They're getting a sign. All of these are signs of the kingdom. Now, in, in Acts 19, as we go into this next section, we see that God, in verse 11, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs, or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. The word there for apron is more like a sweat cloth. So just think about those sweat sweat towels that people used when they're working out, because that's what he was doing. He was working, and it was hot, and these were his sweat rags, and, and even touching them would provide healing for someone. Now, why was that going on? Even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. And then we're going to get into a section dealing with the, these false exorcists, the sons of Sceva, in verses 13 through 20. So what's the context? The context is he's teaching about the kingdom, and what's going on with his teaching about the kingdom? Signs and wonders, healing, miracles, all of these things are taking place. So let's go through this. I've got several, several different um, uh, points here, probably about 11 or 12 with a lot of subpoints. What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God refers to the literal earthly reign of the Messiah, the greater son of David from his throne that in Jerusalem. It's a literal geopolitical kingdom established on the earth, focused in Jerusalem, where the Messiah, the greater son of David, personally rules over the planet. This reign will last a thousand years, according to Revelation 21 through 6. So we also refer to it as the millennial kingdom, millennium meaning a thousand years. Millennium emphasizes as a name, identifies its length, whereas messianic emphasizes its, its nature. It's the rule of the Messiah upon the earth. Now here's a little chart for understanding how kingdom of God's used in the Bible. Sometimes we refer to it as the universal sovereign reign of God, and that's one way in which that is used in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we'll just put up a, a dispensational timeline here, starting with Eden at the very beginning. Then we have Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. That vertical line separates the age of the patriarchs with the uh, uh, age of the law or the uh, dispensation of the patriarchs from the dispensation of the law. Those two sections would refer to the age of Israel. And then the section just prior to the cross is the age of the Messiah, or the age of the kingdom. It's the precursor because what defines it is the message. 
And the message is that the king is at hand and the kingdom is there because the king is there. And then it's followed by the church age. So at the beginning we have what is simply referred to as the theocratic reign. Uh, theocratic from God rule. God rules over the, the planet. Then we have the theocratic kingdom, uh, God ruling through Israel. Then we have... Uh, the mystery of the kingdom, the mysteries of the kingdom. It's not a mystery form of the kingdom. There's no such word in Matthew 13 where we have the parables. The parables are related to the mysteries of the kingdom. That is previously unrevealed truth related to the kingdom. And it's all about the inter-advent age describing what was not revealed in the Old Testament, that there would be an age that comes between the first and second coming of Christ. And then we have the millennial messianic uh, kingdom, which then leads into uh, the eternal theocratic kingdom, which is in the new heavens and the new earth. So the kingdom of God is the messianic rule of the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, from, the, from David's throne in Jerusalem. And this reign, the first part of it, lasts a thousand years. Second point. The establishment of the kingdom is related to three factors. First of all, there's a king, a specific king, a Davidic king, a descendant of David who has the royal lineage behind him in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And we're seeing that, we'll see that emphasized a lot on Sunday morning in our study of Matthew. Uh, Second, a land to rule over. This is why you have the separate covenant of a land covenant, is that for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a domain, the land, and then a people over whom to reign. And they need to be a regenerate people who have a new heart. That's related to the the new covenant. So see, we have a Davidic king, that's the Davidic covenant, a land, that's the land covenant, and a people over whom to realm, that's going to be the new covenant. The kingdom is related to four biblical covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. These are permanent covenants. We often refer to them as unconditional, that because God is the only one who's bound himself to the fulfillment of those covenants. But even within those covenants, there's often conditions, The covenant, not, not on the permanence of the covenant, but if you're going to receive the blessing, you're going to be obedient. So it's a better term. It comes out of Hebrews, which is a permanent covenant. And then I just thought I would put this in there just to see if anybody was awake. I was looking around for this slide, and the first one I found was the one I use when I go to Ukraine. Everything's been translated into Russian just to just so make sure everybody's awake. Okay, here we go. The Old Testament, we have promises, and this leads to the promises are made, and then they're fulfilled in the, in the future. I don't know why that one line got knocked out of place there, but in the Old Testament, we have the Abrahamic covenant, which promises Abraham land, seed, and blessing. The land is further developed in the real estate or land covenant, and that is fulfilled only in the only at the second coming. It's not fulfilled at all until then. Then there's the Davidic covenant. That's fulfilled only at the uh, second coming. And then there is the new covenant 
that is fulfilled in the second coming. Now, what's important here is understanding that each of these, uh, this is the fourth point, or excuse me, the third point, the kingdoms related to these four biblical covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And then the fourth point is that each of these covenants is developed historically. In other words, the land covenant is given in Deuteronomy 29, I believe, and and when, and it forms a foundation for things that are said later in the Davidic covenant and the new covenant, but you can't read the Davidic covenant and the new covenant back into the land covenant, which was given many centuries before. The land covenant is given about 1400 B.C., uh, the Davidic covenant is given around roughly 1,000 B.C., and the New Covenant is given around 600 B.C. You can't take, this is a very important principle, you can't take principles and promises related to a later covenant and read them back into an earlier covenant. You have to, it's, it, they're part of the progress of revelation, so you have to take these things as they're revealed by God over the course of time. And part of the reason this is important is the we'll see is the nature of the Davidic covenant, which is related to a king, and the way things will be in the kingdom because of the messianic king. When the messianic king is ruling over the messianic kingdom, then that means that Satan has been defeated, and there will be healing, and the blind will be given sight. The lame will walk, uh, the demons will be cast out, and this is why when Jesus comes, he does these things, is because he is the king and he is giving them a foretaste, a preview of coming attractions of what it will be like when the kingdom is fully present. That's part of the Davidic covenant. The new covenant focuses on the internal spiritual character of the people. God is going to give them a new heart, and he is going to give them his spirit. And no one is going to need to teach each other about the word because everyone will know it. And it's specifically given to Israel, not to the Gentiles. It's given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So each of these covenants have different aspects and different features. And if you try to... Uh, for example, among so-called progressive dispensationalists, they try to have the Davidic covenant begin uh, in the day of Pentecost along with the new covenant. And I don't think either one of them begins there. There are aspects of the, of the new covenant that are being applied at that point. But with the Davidic covenant, if you have it begin then, you don't have an argument against cessation. They, uh, progressive dispensationalists have undercut themselves, and so it was interesting because a couple of people did papers on why progressive dispensationalism really doesn't have an argument against the cessation of tongues and signs and wonders and, and miracles. And Tommy was sitting next, Tommy Ice was sitting next to me and goes, so I remember when you cornered Daryl Bach. Daryl Bach was a professor at Dallas, was one of the original inventors of the whole progressive dispensational thing. And, and Tommy said, I remember when you cornered Bach in the library at Dallas Seminary told him in 1987 that if they held to an already not yet view of the kingdom, that they didn't have an argument against the cessation of tongues. And that was obvious at that point, and it's 
I'm not the only one who has said that, but a lot of other people have pointed that out, and they don't have an answer for it, and they just dismiss it uh, and say, well, no, it really doesn't apply. But that's not an argument. They try to get more sophisticated than that in their argumentation, but it's, it's, it's just a lot of academic intellectualized smoke and mirrors. It really doesn't answer the question. Okay, so we've looked at the first four, which are just basically introductory points about the covenants in the kingdom. Point number five, the Davidic covenant is given in 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 14, and in 1 Chronicles 17, 10 to 15. The promise is related to the messianic throne, the Messiah's throne, his house, and kingdom, that they will be established forever. Now, it comes out of the Abrahamic covenant. We've seen these many times. The Abrahamic covenant focuses on three aspects, the land, seed, and blessing, promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 13, and other passages. The, the land covenants in Deuteronomy 30, I think I misspoke earlier, I said 29. In Deuteronomy 30, the land covenant, and the Davidic covenants in 2 Samuel 7, the seed and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, a blessing. The Davidic covenant is the one we're focusing on here. The Davidic covenant focuses on the king and the character of the kingdom. What's Paul talking about? What's Peter talking about in Acts? The kingdom. The new covenant is talking about the character of the people in the kingdom. They're given a new heart, and this, the Spirit of God is placed within them. So the Davidic covenant, we have a promise of an eternal house. This is a term related to uh, an eternal uh, dynasty, um, have an eternal, uh, or an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne. Uh, Dwight Pentecost says that the term house, an eternal house, refers to David's physical descendants. It's a dynastic thing. It's an eternal house, but it ends in someone who is eternal. Uh, The term throne refers not so much, he says, to the material throne on which David sat as to the right to rule. So there's an eternal uh, throne which emphasizes uh, 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 his right to rule, that he has the authority because of his royal lineage from David that is vested in the king. And then the term kingdom has to do with the p- political dimension of his rule over, over the kingdom. Now, point number six. All of this is kind of review because I want to help you pull it together. Note bene, that's what NB stands for. That's good academic speak for pay attention. This is a good point. These elements define the lineage, character, and rule of the messianic king in terms of his government on the earth and his people. It does not describe the spiritual characteristics of of the kingdom. The Davidic covenant defines the lineage of the king, he's from David, his character and his, the character of the kingdom and the rule of the kingdom. It is a righteous Rule The descendant of David rules righteously. So the nature of the divinic covenant is primarily focused on the earthly and the physical. The kingdom is in a, a, a geopolitical sphere in a specific location. Now, this is a point I've never brought out before. When I heard it, I went, well, that's a blinding flash of the obvious. The Davidic kingdom is earthly and physical. 
The new covenant is focusing on the spiritual nature of the kingdom, the, the inhabitants of the kingdom. The Davidic covenant is focusing on the earthly, physical characteristics of the kingdom. Uh, the new covenant primarily focuses on the spiritual blessings of the kingdom. Now, that's going to be important because of things that are said related to the Davidic covenant. Now, I could spend two or three weeks going through some of this. I'm not going to do that Um, because I just want to get the main ideas what's important here. Seventh point, all of the covenants to Israel come into fulfillment at the same time. When the messianic or millennial kingdom comes into, into existence at the second coming. Now, what's important about this? I want you to think about this a little bit. What's important about this is when the prophets in the Old Testament are standing back here 2,500, 3,000 years before the kingdom comes, and they're talking about one or another covenant, they're looking far off into the distant future, and they're describing characteristics of the kingdom, and they're not distinguishing necessarily in every passage what characteristics are related to what covenant. In fact, Jeremiah is the one who first introduces the terminology of the new covenant. And Jeremiah writes roughly around 605 to 596 B.C., That's the first clear message, identification of terminology of the New Covenant. When was Isaiah written? Isaiah is written around 700 or so to uh, 720 B.C. No, that's the uh, fall of the the, uh, uh, northern kingdom. Isaiah is written about 150 years early, around 630 to 650. So Isaiah is written about 150 years before there's any mention of a new covenant. He describes features that will be part of the new covenant, but new covenant hasn't been identified yet. What he's really talking about is characteristics of the kingdom related to the Davidic king. Now, we later on we realize that when the Davidic king comes at the same time, and I taught this but not quite this clearly in Hebrews, When the Davidic king comes, that's the same time that the new covenant goes into effect. But the Davidic, all the aspects of the Davidic covenant relate to the nature and characteristics of the king and his kingdom as a physical earthly kingdom. That has to be kept separate from the, from the, uh, new covenant aspects which relate to the, to the, to the spiritual and that the internal spiritual nature of the people. So. This leads us to the eighth point. The scriptures promise certain physical blessings which will come to pass when the kingdom is established. We'll see these scriptures in a little bit. Part of these physical characteristics are that people are healed. The lame walk, the blind see, the lepers are healed. Demons are cast out. That's what I mean by physical blessings. The Satan is cast out of the kingdom, and he is... Um, he is in, uh, bound in chains for a thousand years. These, this is all talking about the physical dimensions of, of the kingdom. Traditional dispensationalism, and I'm using that as a broad term. This goes back to Darby, later to Schofield, 
uh, Gabeline, Chafer, Ryrie, Pentecost, up until 1986 when Daryl Bach, Craig Blazing, and Robert Sosi came up with a whole new thing called progressive dispensationalism. When Bruce Waltke, who had been an Old Testament professor at Dallas a decade or so earlier, first read it, he said they don't want, they don't want to admit it, but they're all millennial because of the way they're treating the kingdom as something that is already here but not yet fully here. There was no longer a postponed kingdom. That's why when I teach, have been teaching through Acts, I've emphasized that the kingdom is completely postponed. If the kingdom is here in any way, shape, or form, then the characteristics of the kingdom need to be here. Signs, wonders, healing. This is part of the whole problem you get with... um, charismatic theology, that was, the, that was the way in which they treated their understanding of the kingdom. When you go to many generic evangelical churches today, they, they sing choruses that talk about the kingdom now. There's some way we're in the kingdom now, and these things are present. They, they talk about uh, Jesus as the king ruling in some sense now. Whereas the Bible talks about the fact that he's not even on his own throne yet. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father's throne, and the Father is still ruling and hasn't given the kingdom to the Son of Man, which is all described in the prophecy of of Daniel chapter 8. This doesn't come into effect, or Daniel 7 rather, this doesn't come into effect until the second coming. So we have these various theologies that have some form of the kingdom now. Amillennialism has a spiritual form of the kingdom now. Postmillennialism, we're going to eventually bring in the kingdom. It's spiritual now, but becomes more and more physical. Uh, charismatic Pentecostal theology, where it has some form of the kingdom now, so as does progressive dispensationalism in terms of this idea of the already not yet. Now, another reason you need to learn that and be familiar with that kind of terminology, I've also warned you, as a shepherd should, about people who get caught up with N.T. Wright and uh, some, uh, at least one doctrinal church, maybe two or three, have gotten caught up with the teaching of N.T. Wright and have gradually been introducing their congregations or the way they took their congregations offline and uh, out in the Tulis is they began teaching this already not yet view of the kingdom. Well, once everybody got on board with that, then they started going in other directions until eventually they became or become preterist or and they become anti-dispensational. So that that's how they start down that wrong road. Now, if you have a view where we're in some form of the kingdom now, then you're going to have certain characteristics of the kingdom now. And a uh, theologian up at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School calls it the uh, uh, sort of this little syllogism that goes along with, with this, and he has set it forth this way, that where the kingdom of God is present, the healing of disease is present. That's your first first major premise. When the kingdom of God is present, the healing of disease is present. That can be clearly established. Some people will argue with that, but that's clearly established from Isaiah, and we'll look at some of the passages in a minute. Minor premise is the kingdom of God is present in this age in some way. Well, if the kingdom of God is present in this age in any way, then we ought to have the signs of the kingdom present in some way, and that would be the charismatic gifts, the the gifts of healing 
and uh, the gifts of tongues and prophecy, knowledge, etc. So according to his old syllogism, as he summarized this view, therefore the healing of disease would be present in this age. So if you have any form of the kingdom today, then you've got you don't you don't you don't have an argument against the continuation or the cessation of the sign gifts. Now what's all, let's look at some scripture. So that was point number nine. Number point number ten is dealing with some scripture. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter eleven, verse one. Matthew chapter eleven, verse one. I hope you're having fun. I just love stuff like this. Matthew eleven. Verse 1. Now, this is one of those little conversations that Jesus has uh, long-distance conversations with John the Baptist that's always confused people. He gets an inquiry from John the Baptist. We're told now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. He's up in Galilee, and he's going to have a lengthy ministry going through all the villages and towns in Galilee, and he's teaching and and, teaching and preaching. And then in verse 2 we read, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, so what has he heard about? He's heard about the signs and the wonders. He's heard about the the healing. He's heard about the blind being uh, given sight and the lepers being healed and the lame walking. When he hears about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and, and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, if we look over the parallel... In Luke 7:18, actually, just hold your place there, and let's look at Luke 7. You'll get used to doing this on Sunday mornings. Luke 7:18 is the parallel passage, but it gives us a little more detail because Luke writes in a more historical line, and so we see what's happening right before this. Uh, Luke 7:18, the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. What are the all these things? All these things are what happens in the first 17 verses of Luke 7. Jesus healed the centurion's servant in the first 10 verses. And the servant who had been sick is healed. The next thing that happens is he raises the son of the widow of Nain and gives him, uh, gives him life. And he arises uh, from the dead. Verse 15, so he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to, and he, meaning Jesus, presented him to his mother. Now, when these things, what are we talking about here? We're talking about giving life to the dead, and we're talking about healing the sick. These are the signs of the kingdom. These are the signs of the Messiah. And so when the disciples of John report to John all these things, the healings, the, the, the blind being able to see, etc. John says, wow, these are the signs of the kingdom, but John's confused. Now remember, John is Jesus' cousin. John would have been told the stories of the miracle of his birth by his parents from the time he was little. He knew what his mission was as the announcer, the forerunner uh, of, of the Messiah. 
He is the one who was there to and baptized Jesus. And when he baptizes Jesus and immerses him in the river Jordan and pulls him out, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. John saw all of that. But John is confused because not all of the signs of the kingdom are taking place. And so he wants to see what is what is going on. So Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. Let's just think about what went on in the passage. Um, Jesus is going about teaching the kingdom. What's he teaching? Matthew 4, 17, from that time, that's from his inauguration of the ministry, Jesus began to preach and to say, for repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 17. In Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. See, in Matthew, uh, when we started this in Matthew chapter 11, all we're told is that after Jesus finished instructing his disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach. What was he teaching and preaching? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us here. He's already told us a half a dozen times that Jesus is teaching and preaching the kingdom. The rejection of Jesus doesn't come until chapter 12. So he's still offering the kingdom. Matthew 9.34, Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Do you see a pattern here? When the kingdom is being proclaimed, there's healing. We'll see this again and again and again in in, in Matthew. In fact, Matthew takes a couple of whole chapters with the disciples and Jesus just to point out all the healings and all the miracles that they were performing as they're going about proclaiming the message of the proximity of the kingdom. In Matthew 10, 7, the previous chapter, the one we're looking at, Matthew 11, Jesus sends the disciples out and says, As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Why is he telling them to do this? Because they're offering the kingdom and they're going to be offering, um, they're going to be, demonstrating these previews of coming attractions. The kingdom is at hand because the king is present. Jesus is there. And so there is a foretaste of the kingdom, what he is offering. Now, when John hears this, um, he sends two of his disciples to inquire who Jesus is. Are you the coming one? Now, the term the coming one is used four or five other times in the New Testament, uh, as a reference to Jesus and and the the fact that he is the Messiah. So John, who's been told everything from his parents, he's Jesus' cousin, he knows the story of his birth and purpose, he knows the story of Jesus' birth and his purpose, but something isn't going the way it should be going. And so if we look at Luke, if you're still there in Luke, and Luke 7.18 He's somewhat confused. Let me read it. Luke seven eighteen. The disciples reported to him concerning oh, reported to John all these things. So we see this in the whole passage of John. He's wondering what's going on. He's hearing about the healings, but he's not hearing about a particular one particular thing. In Isaiah forty two one. Now this is important. 
Isaiah 42.1 is being addressed to the servant. We studied the suffering servant when we studied Isaiah 53. This is the Messiah. God the Father is speaking. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax will not quench. He will bring forth justice for the truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. All of these are just describing the nature of his reign as the Davidic king in righteousness. Thus, verse 5, thus says the Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth, that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the servant. He is giving his commissioning orders to the servant. I have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. He will give the Davidic king as a covenant. This is a reference to the Davidic covenant and the promise to give a descendant of David to the people. That is what that's referencing. So 42.6 is talking about the Davidic covenant. As a light to the Gentiles, to do what? To open blind eyes, and then what? Now, if you're John the Baptist and you are wallowing in a prison in Herod's dungeon, and you're reading this verse, great, he's raising the dead, he's healing the sick, he's the lame are walking, but wait a minute. Why isn't he getting the prisoners out of prison? Hello, Jesus, let me out of here. If this is the kingdom, why am I not being released? He's reading verse 7, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And so in Matthew eleven two, we read, and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Now, what's interesting here. Is what does he hear about? He hears about the works of Christ. Now, you just read that. You didn't see anything important there. This is the only time in the book of Matthew when Christos occurs without Jesus next to it. That's important. We're going to be studying observation when we get into Bible study methods, and these are the kinds of things that go right past us because we don't see it. It's the only time Christos is used. He's emphasizing, Matthew's emphasizing the Messiah and not his humanity at all. This is the only time Jesus is referred to simply by his title as the Messiah, as uh, Ha Christos. So Paul, uh, I mean, John hears this, and he mentions that he heard in prison about the works of Christ, and he sends to inquire of them, are you the coming one? And that's a term related to, uh, to the Messiah. As seen in other passages such as Mark eleven nine, Luke thirteen thirty five, Luke nineteen thirty eight, and Hebrews ten thirty seven. I'll give those one more time. Mark eleven nine, uh, Luke thirteen thirty five, Luke nineteen thirty eight, and Hebrews ten thirty seven. So what does Jesus tell him to do? Matthew eleven, he says. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. 
See, of those, only the last one is marginally related to the spiritual. The rest of them are all related to the physical. He's fulfilling the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise of a Davidic king who, when he comes, is going to bring healing to Israel. Isaiah 29:18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Isaiah 33:24. And the inhabitants will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it, that is in the kingdom, will be forgiven their iniquity. Isaiah 35, 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. See, this is all physical. This isn't talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and regeneration and putting the law of God in their heart. That's part of the new covenant. This is the Davidic that all related to the presence of the Davidic king. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord, is a, God is upon me. This is being spoken by the Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now what happens is, in Matthew 11.4, Jesus says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. But the kingdom isn't in its fullest expression in Jesus. It's just a foreshadowing. It's just a preview of coming attractions. So he quotes and summarizes Isaiah in verse 5. And then in verse 6 he says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. In other words, I'm not, I'm not here to do... The kingdom is not here in, full, in its fullest expression... So if I'm not, if I don't heal you or don't deliver you from prison, you know, don't let that knock you off track. This is a confusing point that John the Baptist had. He thought that because he wasn't being let out of prison, how could Jesus really be the messianic king? Because the messianic king was supposed to deliver the prisoners. But Jesus is saying, don't let that be a stumbling block to you because I'm not doing everything here. And bringing in the kingdom unless uh, the people accept me. So point number 11. Though the king and the kingdom were present, it was not completely present. For example, the liberation of the captives wasn't taking place, so all we're seeing is preview of coming attractions. That's what I've been saying for the last five minutes or so. Then we come to the 12th point, which takes us to Matthew 12, 28. Matthew 12 is the rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees and by the Pharisaic leadership. It comes to a conclusion because the Pharisees are saying that after Jesus has cast this demon out, that he's really doing it in the power of Satan. Beelzebul is a term they used to describe uh, the devil. Uh, And so Jesus gives them a little uh, uh, statement. He says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, the question that they asked in Matthew 12:33, as they see him cast out this demon, they're amazed at all these miracles, and they say, could this be the son of David? Now, the way they form it in the Greek is they expect a negative answer. No, this couldn't be the son of David. But their, fa- their, their, their resistance to his message is beginning to waver. So the Pharisees come along and say, no, this can't be the son of David. He's doing this in the power, in the power of, of the devil. 
Now, Jesus answers them with basically three lines of defense. First of all, he says that the accusation of the Pharisees won't hold water because it's impossible for a kingdom or a city or even a family to exist when it is divided against itself. That's in Matthew 12, uh, 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Second, he points out in verse 27 that if he cast out, uh, that if other exorcists, and there's always a distinction, exor- the term exorcism is never applied to Jesus, only to the pseudo-exorcists, only to the pagans, only to the magicians. When Jesus or his disciples uh, expel a demon from someone, it's always described by the word cast out. So... In verse Matthew twelve twenty seven, Jesus says that if basically if other exorcists cast out demons, and the Pharisees claim that that is done by divine power, then they they're going to have a problem. A third reply is seen in verse twenty eight: If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. As he makes the inference that if he's casting out demons, then the kingdom of God is present. And this takes us to a key word here, phthano, which means to arrive. It's not approaching. It's not near. It is present. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here. And it's there because of the king, because the king is there and the uh, characteristics of the kingdom are present because the king is there. Um, and this is also reinforced by the use of the preposition epi in the, in the statement. So Jesus' miracles not only give evidence of who he is as deity, but they, miracles reveal the presence of the kingdom. They're signs of the kingdom. So when the Messiah comes, Satan will be vanquished, the dead will be raised, sickness will be vanquished, there will be healing, there will be no more illness. Uh, Jesus' victory over the demons then gives evidence that the Messianic king is present. Now that offer, as we've seen, is postponed. I mean, it is rejected and the kingdom is postponed. But there's a second offer of the kingdom that comes along. That's what we've been seeing in Acts. There's this second offer of the kingdom in Acts, and so as long as there is still an offer of the kingdom, the kingdom message is still going to be accompanied by the signs of the kingdom, by the miracles, by the healings. This is what we've seen with Peter raising the dead. We've seen it with, uh, with Philip. We've seen it with, these, with, these, uh, with the disciples, and we see it here in Paul. And as long as there's an emphasis on the kingdom, which is an offer to who? It's an offer to the Jews. What are the Jews looking for? They're looking for a sign. What are all these gifts related to? They are signs. They are signs of the kingdom. And so while the kingdom message is being presented, the sign gifts and the signs of the kingdom are present. And this goes up until about 66 or 67. You can't pinpoint it. We just don't know enough history to somewhere in there 
when the Jewish revolt has taken place and now the destruction of the temple is inevitable, and at that point there's no more of an emphasis on the kingdom of God. It disappears. It's not there in the, in the, in the epistles. And so that's at the time the tongues will cease. Now, as we close rapidly, I just want to put this together for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse uh, 10, is where we see the main uh, central passage on the cessation of tongues. But it's wrapped around a statement in verses 8 and 9 of two other gifts. Prophecy will be abolished and knowledge will be abolished. In the New King James, in a lot of translations, they use different words to try to make it stylistically uh, stylistically uh, interesting in English. But what you have is prophecy and knowledge both have the same verb in the Greek. They're both n- abolished. But tongues has a different verb. Tongues will cease. It's a different verb. It's pow, and it's in the middle voice. And so people always debate, why is there a different verb? Because prophecy and knowledge are both partial. Verse 9 says that knowledge and prophecy are, part, are in part. But when the perfect comes, then that which is in part will be done away. Once again, it uses that word uh, for uh, that, that, that used earlier, that prophecy and knowledge would be abolished. Well, prophecy and knowledge are going to be abolished, but tongues will cease. See, when the perfect comes, that's the end of prophecy and knowledge. The perfect refers to the completed canon of Scripture. But tongues isn't abolished by the coming of the perfect. Everybody misreads that. You just have to pay attention to the text. Now, the completed canon doesn't occur until about AD 90. But I believe tongues already ended. And the reason tongues already ended was because of its purpose. And the purpose is stated, if you look across the page or the next page in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 21, states in the law, which is a reference to Isaiah, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. Therefore, Paul says, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, unbelieving Jews, because the prophecy from Isaiah 28, 11, and 12 is emphasizing that as part of the fifth cycle of discipline, the Jews are going to hear spiritual things in Gentile languages. It's not that they're going to be evangelized. That's not its purpose. Many people get that wrong. Tongues isn't really designed to give revelation. It might have given something revelatory. It, on occasion, it might have even included the gospel, but it was the fact that Jews heard spiritual revelatory truth given in a Gentile language instead of a, instead of a Hebrew that judgment was coming. Because from the time of God's call of Abraham, God was giving everything through the Jewish people and in Hebrew or Aramaic. But now it's going to be in Gentile languages, which means God is shifting his plan away from the Jews. So what brings tongues to an end is the destruction of the temple, the end of that temple period. So tongues ends by 70 A.D., But what we see even more clearly from what I've been put together is signs and wonders and healings. 
And all of this connected with tongues is part of the message, a, 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 the vindication and validation of the message of the kingdom. Once that's completely finally rejected and God completely removes that message, then all the other that goes with it also disappears. And this gives us a great argument for understanding cessation, but it also helps us to understand why it is all through Acts that every time they're talking about the kingdom, these miracles are ongoing. It's because they are signs to the Jews that they will uh, of the truth of the message, but they reject it. So that helps us to understand why right away as we come out of, out of uh, verse 8, 19.8, we're going to go into this episode with demonic possession and the emphasis on healing in relation to uh, to Paul's ministry. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, and we pray you just help us to uh, uh, put this together, give us a greater insight into your scope, your plan, your purpose. Father, it, it tells us about your faithfulness to your word, your faithfulness to your covenants and your promises to uh, Israel, and that you have, while you set them aside uh, as, a, as a people temporarily, nevertheless you will Restore them, and you will faithfully fulfill all that you have promised. And that is a great encouragement to us that you will always be faithful to us and fulfill your promises to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.